You may remember last time we were in Romans, we didn't quite finish the passage that we started, and so we're going to go back and pick up where we left off at verse, well, 22 will give us a little bit of context. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory, riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Amen. That's God's word to us uh, this morning. We're going to have a prayer and just ask for God's help as we consider his word together. And then after we've prayed, the, the young ones, primary age children, are going to head out the back doors to Sunday school. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are God who speaks to us. Father, we thank you that we have before us a copy of your word. We thank you that when we open our Bibles, we see the truth about who you are, we see the truth about who we are, and we meet our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for us this morning as we look into your word again. We pray that by your spirit you would teach us. We ask that you would do your work in our hearts, cut away our self-righteousness, cause us to long for and delight in the righteousness of Jesus. Well, we pray for the young ones as well as they go out to Sunday school. We pray for their teachers, that they would know your help to teach this passage. We pray for all of the young ones that they may listen 
hard to your word and we pray that as they listen, you would bring faith to grow in their hearts. We ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. If you've got your Bibles, again, pop those open. It's really good to bring your Bible with you uh, and then you can follow along. You'll find that uh, helpful. We are diving back into Romans 9. Uh, and the big, the big question uh, that is front and center in these three chapters, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, the big question that is on Paul's mind is, has the word of God failed? Has the word of God failed? If you're ever wondering, you know, where are we in Romans 9, 10, and 11? And that's the question that these chapters are addressing. Remember in Romans 1 to 8, I know some of this is recap and repetition, uh, but I think repetition is a good way to learn. Uh, but the letter to the Romans is all about the gospel. Paul has said the gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. And he's unpacked that good news in all of its glory and detail. And now in Romans 9, 10, 11, he's looking at the progress that the gospel is making on the ground in the first century. And as Paul surveys the progress of the gospel, and as he looks particularly at his fellow countrymen, the Jews, his heart breaks. Because by and large, the Jews had rejected Jesus. All of these promises that are made in the Old Testament that, that reach their fulfillment and flowering in the Lord Jesus, the Jews had rejected Jesus. And we, from kind of a distance of 20 centuries, that maybe doesn't mean too much to us, but for Paul in the first century, that fact is deeply painful and personal. Just so we can understand how that felt for the Apostle Paul, just try for a moment to put yourself in his shoes, in his kind of day-to-day -day reality. What was Paul doing? Paul was traveling around the Mediterranean, wasn't he? He was sharing this gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so imagine you're Paul, you, you rock up at a city. What's the first thing you do? You go to the synagogue. You're a Jew. That's where your fellow Jews are. You go to the synagogue and you begin to talk about Jesus. You open the Old Testament scriptures and you share with, with your fellow countrymen the truth about Jesus. Some of those in the synagogue believe. They receive the gospel. But slowly what happens is kind of there becomes this hostility within the synagogue. And eventually you're kind of hounded out of town and out of, out of the synagogue by those you came to share the gospel with. That was Paul's experience. City after city. You read Acts 13 to 21. That's what happens to Paul. And so having started in the synagogue with the Jews, he then goes to the Gentiles and he will share the gospel with the Gentiles. In fact, in one case... Uh, in Macedonia, Paul leaves the synagogue and goes right next door, <laughs> right next door to the, to the, to the house of a, a Gentile man and shares the gospel with him. 
And seeing this pattern and knowing that everyone knows about what's happening as Paul shares the gospel, Paul has to address this question of has the word of God failed? It may not be our question, but it's an important question, isn't it? Because if the word of God has failed once, it can fail again, can't it? If God has been unfaithful to his word once, he could be unfaithful to his word again. And Paul has just said to us that you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's love is steadfast and sure. But then he's aware of the promises of God's steadfast love to his Old Testament people. And so he asks the question, has God, God's word failed? And the answer is no, no, God's word hasn't failed. And the first way Paul answers that question is by looking at the question from God's perspective. He takes a God's eye view on the response of the people of Israel. And he says, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Belonging to God's family has never been about having the right family connections or about having the right genetics. Belonging to God's family has never been about having the blood of Abraham in your veins. It's always been about having the faith of Abraham in your heart. And so Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. There is this Israel within the nation of Israel. God's sovereign, isn't he? And we've seen over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at Romans 9 that God makes his children when and where he likes according to his miraculous power. From start to finish, it's an act of God's sovereign mercy. Let me remind you this morning, if you belong to Jesus, that is 100% down to God's mercy. If you're a Christian, that is 100% result of God's mercy. And that, is, that, that has to be at the core of your identity. That has to be at the core of how you think about yourself. Look around at your brothers and sisters in church this morning. We're all very different, aren't we? Some are older, some are younger. You can decide which category you put yourself in. Some are manual workers, you know, tough hands. Others like me have softer hands. Some are male, some are female. Some have been part of this church for decades and some are relatively new. But here's what we need to learn to do as a church. We've got to look past all of that. Those things are relatively superficial compared to this fact. We are vessels of God's mercy. That's the deepest truth about all of us who are in the Lord Jesus. And if we focus on those peripheral things, those superficial differences... That will drive all sorts of wedges and divisions within our church. But if we simply revel in the fact that we are vessels of God's mercy, whether we're young or old, whether we've got hard hands or soft hands, whether we've been coming to this church for decades or whether we're relatively new, if if we just revel in the fact that we are vessels of God's mercy, that will bring a lovely unity. And so as Paul's 
answers this question, has the word of God failed? He says no, because God is sovereign and he shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. And that means uh, the family of God is, a, is an international family. Isn't it? I think that's the point of these quotes. If you look in verses 26 to 30, God's election, God's choice, the outpouring of his mercy is not limited to one nation, but it's international. That was Paul's job, wasn't it? Just look back at chapter one, verse five. Paul's job description, he says, he's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Because Jesus is king of creation, Every nation, people from every language owe him allegiance. They owe him trust in submission. And so Paul, as he he sees this new church growing, this mixture of some Jews and many Gentiles, he sees in that not a failure of God's word, but a fulfillment of God's word. So he quotes from Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. Those who were not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. In the first half of Romans 9, it looks like God's grace is narrowing, doesn't it? You know, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. It looks like it's getting narrower and narrower and narrower. But that narrowing was all all about an eventual overflowing. (laughs) An overflowing that would encompass people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so this morning as we meet together to praise God, we are part of a great global family. So from the first sunrise in New Zealand to the last sunset in Alaska, today throughout the world, God's name will be praised by his children, who are children because he is merciful. God's word has not failed. And Paul also sees in God's word the prediction or the prophecy of the hardness that he sees within his own countrymen. So look, there he quotes from Isaiah Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's taking great comfort in the sovereignty of God. Even as he preaches the gospel, even as he faces hostility and rejection, he's hiding hiding away in in the sovereignty of God and so he doesn't give up. I'll say it again, I think I've said it before, but the sovereignty of God doesn't make us fatalistic. It doesn't mean we shrug and just say, well, God will save whom he will save. Now we see from the Apostle Paul, it drives him to his knees in prayer. It sends him out eager to proclaim the gospel. Maybe you know something of Paul's heartache. 
you know, Paul's heartache for these countrymen whom he loved. Maybe you know what it's like to have a, a loved one, a friend or a family member who you've prayed for a lot. They've heard the gospel, but thus far they have seemed indifferent or hard-hearted. They've rejected Jesus. Maybe a mum or a dad or a son or a daughter. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you are tempted to give up hope. Well, do you see it's the sovereignty of God, the very fact that he can overcome the hardest heart. He can soften the stubbornest person. Do you see that sovereignty of God? It's that very thing that will keep you praying. So the word of God has not failed. And then in verse 30, we have another question from the apostle Paul. What, what shall we say then? So the kind of taking stock question. You know, how should we respond to this? And with that question, Paul changes his perspective a little bit. He's been looking at the situation of the rejection of his fellow Israelites from God's perspective. And now he changes his perspective, and he begins to look at it from the perspective of human responsibility. We've thought, haven't we already, how these two things, God's sovereignty, the fact that he does exactly as he pleases, and he rules his world in his own way, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, our choices, the things that we decide to do, how do those two things fit together. Well, we see here in Romans 9 and Romans 10 that those two things fit beautifully together. Paul explains Israel's rejection from the standpoint of God's sovereignty. And then in chapter 10, he explains it from the standpoint of Israel's responsibility. See, we're tempted, aren't we, when we think about this conundrum of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. We're tempted to think of it as a bit of a 50-50 a bit like a tennis match. You know, the way the world works is kind of 50% our actions and our responsibility and 50% God's sovereignty. A bit like when two people play tennis, you know, the ball's on one side of the court, it's hit over to the other side, and then it's returned. But that's not a great way to think about it. Our salvation isn't 50% God and 50% us. That's not the way God rules his world. Much more helpful is to think about how it works in a football match. (laughs) In a football match, it's not kind of one team playing in 50% of the the pitch and another team playing in 50% of the pitch. It's both teams playing on the pitch 100% of the time, playing on all of the pitch 100% of the time. We are 100% responsible for the decisions that we make. And God is 100% sovereign in all that happens in his world. Maybe think about the example of uh, the scriptures. If I ask you a question, who wrote Romans? Who wrote the book of Romans? Well, you might say Paul. (laughs) Paul wrote 100% of the book of Romans. He did, I'm sure it took all of his, his heart and mind and energies were employed in writing this great letter. 
But then also we know, don't we, that all scripture is breathed out by God, that God is the ultimate author of the book of Romans, that there's nothing in the book of Romans that God didn't want in there, there's nothing left out that God wanted in. And so we could say that Paul 100% wrote the book of Romans, and God 100% wrote the book of Romans, and we have no problem with that. And so Paul moves from God's sovereignty to human responsibility. Why, why from the standpoint of human responsibility had the Jews rejected Jesus by and large, talking in general, generalities? Paul helps us to understand that by introducing a contrast Here we go. See if you can spot the contrast in these verses. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. This is a contrast between two very different ways of trying to be righteous, trying to be right in God's sight. The first is pursuing the law and trying by our own efforts to obey God's law and thereby make ourselves righteous with God. The second way is very different. And this is the way that Paul says some Gentiles had found righteousness with God. He says that they did not pursue law and works but they pursued a right, or they have attained a righteousness that is by faith. So this is a righteousness that comes simply by receiving, not by doing. So Paul looks at his fellow countrymen and they've got their Bibles open, they're looking at the law, and all they can see, it seems, is what they must do. The law to them calls out from their heart self-effort, self-exertion. They, they must try hard to be righteous. It seems they can't see anything more than a cold, impersonal law. Maybe this contrast is hard for us to grasp, but I think Jesus gives a wonderful, a masterful illustration of this contrast between these two ways of, of trying to work our way to righteousness and finding a righteousness that is by faith. You know the story, don't you, of the parable of the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee? You know that parable? Two men go up to the temple to pray. One is a very religious Pharisee. He stands to pray and listen to his prayer. And God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's probably, I think, a bit of a caricature. (laughs) Maybe an overstatement. But you get the point, don't you? This man thinks he's a cut above. He looks around and he thinks he's made the grade. And can you see where the focus of his prayer is? He talks about thanking God, but actually the focus of his prayer is me, me, me. (laughs) I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other. And then there's the other man in the temple, the tax collector. His prayer is short. He cannot even lift his eyes to heaven. 
And he simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see the foundation of his prayer? Can you see the focus of his prayer? It's not his doing, it's God's mercy. And the kind of punchline, the surprise that Jesus gives in the parable is it's the, the tax collector who goes home righteous and not the Pharisee. It's a striking contrast, isn't it? Pharisee, with all of his works, all of his effort, all of his claims, is not righteous. And the man who simply bows his head and asks for mercy is made righteous. Paul goes on to explain that this contrast between these two ways explains why his fellow countrymen have been trying to be righteous. They've been pursuing righteousness with great zeal and yet they failed to attain it. They failed in their pursuit. Listen, Paul says, why? Why have they failed in their pursuit? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They thought the essential call of the law was human effort and human performance. But actually, if they'd understood the law properly, what the law was calling from them was faith. Faith in what God had said. Faith in what God had done and would do. And yet the Jews of Paul's day, by and large, had made their own performance the measure and basis of their acceptance before God. So Paul says they fail in their pursuit of righteousness. This is, isn't it, how all man-made religion works. All man-made religion works like this. You do X, Y, Z, and you're in. You fail to do X, Y, Z, and you're out. You keep the right feasts and fasts. You keep certain days. You drink this or don't drink that. You try hard and keep this set of rules. And people will, be, will accept you and tell you that you're also accepted by God. That's the basis of all man-made religion. But that's not how Christianity works. Christianity is not firstly about what I can do or what I have done. It's about what God has done through Jesus Christ. And it is so important that we grasp this, isn't it? (laughs) So important. Do you know what? It's possible to sit in church week after week and year after year to sing the songs, to hear the Bible taught, and to still be functioning on this kind of operating system that says, I must do, I must do, I must do. If I'm going to be accepted, I've got to do X, Y, Z. And so that all of your religious activity, you're coming to church, you're serving, you're praying, your good works are are fueled and fed by this desire to be accepted. It's a worry I have. I think it's a worry that a lot of pastors have. A worry that sometimes 
sometimes keeps me awake. <laughs> that there may be people who, who meet here each week, they very much consider themselves part of the church. If you, if, you, if, if you ask them, yes, yes, I'm a Christian, but the sum total of their Christianity is about what they do. It's about doing the right thing. And the gospel is not about what you or I can do. It's a declaration of what God has done. I say, of course I belong to this church. I've been coming to this church for years. Of course I'm a Christian. Look at, all, look at the money I've given. Look at how I've served. Look at what I've done. Can you see just how like the, the Pharisee's prayer that is? <laughs> the right answer is, of course I'm a Christian. God has shown mercy to me in Jesus. Of course I'm part of his church. In Jesus, he's welcomed me in as his child. The gospel is about what God has done. And again, Paul makes this clear in verse 32 and 33. He says of his fellow countrymen, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's about what God has done. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. That word is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. First quoted or first spoken through Isaiah to God's people. And when it came to those people, they were a rebellious people. They were people who thought, thought they could rule themselves. They were people who, who thought by their own efforts they could escape God's judgment. And God comes with a word to the rulers of his people and says, no, I'm, I'm laying a stone in Zion. I'm establishing my king, my ruler in Zion. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that God has established is the Lord Jesus. Through his sacrificial death, death and through his resurrection, God has established Jesus as his king. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, those words, it is finished. Temple curtain torn in two. The way into God's presence open for all who would come to Jesus. And all who come to Jesus, Paul says, will never be put to shame. There's a song where the words of the song go like this. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. That's what we say when we believe the gospel. What will keep us from believing the gospel? It's our pride, isn't it? It's our pride. You know the, the story in the Old Testament of Naaman, the Syrian general, like that great man everyone would have looked up to. He had that disease, leprosy. He, uh, he heard that there was a God in Israel who may be able to heal his disease. And so he wrote to the king of Israel a letter asking for said cure. King of Israel is in turmoil, doesn't know what to do. Who am I that I can heal Naaman's leprosy? 
But then the prophet Elisha hears of the king's plight and he says, I, I, I can help. <laughs> and so he sends a message to the prophet Naaman. If you want to be clean, go and wash in the river Jordan seven times. How does the prophet Naaman respond? How does uh, the Syrian general Naaman respond? Well, he's offended, isn't he? He wants the prophet to come and see him. He says, are there not rivers in, in Damascus that are better than the River Jordan? And it's his little servant girl says, what a word the prophet has given you. <laughs> Simply wash and be clean. <laughs> so simple. See, Naaman wanted to do something. <laughs> something hard. He wanted to give his money to earn his cure. And all he has to do is wash and be clean. And so he follows the wisdom of the servant girl. He goes down to the river. He, he dunks seven times in the River Jordan and he's cured of his, his leprosy. But it's pride, isn't it, that keeps us from the gospel. The gospel calls us to humble ourselves before King Jesus. The gospel says to us we need to be forgiven. The gospel says there's no chance we can earn our way into God's family. There's nothing that we can do. It's a song, isn't it? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, saviour, or I die. Let me ask you a question. Have you come to Jesus like that? Have you come to him to lay all that you are before him? not just in a moment of time, but forever to submit to Jesus and to trust in him? Or are you stumbling on this stone? Are you offended that Jesus bids you come and kneel before him? Are you offended that you need forgiveness? In his biography, John Stott tells this story uh, of a time early in his Christian life. He just understood the gospel of grace that he could do nothing to earn his way to God, but God would graciously accept him in Jesus. That it was all of God's mercy. And he was trying to explain this to a friend. John Stott said he was very startled and surprised when suddenly his friend shouted out three times, horrible, horrible, horrible. <laughs> The gospel was so offensive to his friend. That's exactly how many of Paul's fellow countrymen felt about the gospel and it broke Paul's heart. It broke Paul's heart and it drove him to his knees and that's where we find him at the beginning of chapter 10 in fervent prayer. Brothers, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. As Paul looks on at his fellow Jews there, they're full of religious zeal. Their lives were dominated by religious activity. But it was all misdirected. It was all based on ignorance. And it was a, it was a willful ignorance 
Paul says, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They'd heard about God's righteousness in Jesus Christ, but they would not submit to the king of righteousness. They wanted to rule their own lives. If you could go back in time, you would see people who were very sincere, who were very devoted, who would look very godly. And yet Paul says, they're zealous, but it's not according to knowledge. As we look around our world today, we see all sorts of religious activity, don't we? All sorts of spiritualities. And it's tempting as we see all of these different religions around the world, it's tempting to think that the world is full of people who are searching for God, who are frantically looking for God. And yet the gospel reveals the truth about the religions of the world, doesn't it? People are not looking for God. People are seeking to establish a righteousness of their own and they will not submit to King Jesus. Sincerity is, is not enough. And Paul is writing about what he knows about, isn't he? Do you remember Paul's pre-Christian life? Do you remember that little biography he gives of himself in Philippians chapter three, how he describes his zeal? He speaks to himself, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And yet when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road, the risen and righteous Jesus, he saw all of his own efforts at righteousness as as valuable as the contents of a dustbin. He says, all of my efforts at righteousness, a heap of junk, worthless. And he turned from pursuing his own righteousness to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And I think this is what he means in the final verse of our passage, verse four, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does he mean by the end of the law? We can use that word end in a couple of ways, can't we? We can talk about the end as the, the goal. <laughs> you know, that's the end to which we're aiming at. And in a sense, Christ is the end of the law in that sense. He's the goal of the law, the one to whom the law is pointing. We can also use the, the, the word end as in finish. You know, it's finished. At the end of a journey, it's finished. I think also Paul means here the word end in that sense, finish. That Christ is the finished of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, when you see Jesus, when you, when you come to know Jesus, it just spells an end to all of your efforts to establish your own righteousness. 
Let me try to illustrate. This may be a silly illustration, but I hope it helps. Earlier this week, I was trying to get from Arkham to Borwick. And so I, I turned out of Arkham and came up the hill towards Carnforth. And then, just after the turn off to Gressingham, I hope you're with me, tried to take a right down the hill here past Cape and Rain. At the top of the road, it said, road closed ahead. Hmm. Okay, I just kind of went past the road closed sign and thought, I wonder how far along this road I can get before it's actually closed. <laughs> came down the hill past Cape and Ray, came to another road closed ahead sign. I thought, well, we'll just go a little bit further. Maybe I can get through to Borick. Went a little bit further, another road closed ahead sign. Well, maybe I, can, maybe I can reach my destination this way. And eventually, before I got to Borick, there was cones all the way across the road, big signs, <laughs> road closed. I had to turn around. In the Old Testament, often, God warns his people about trying to establish their own righteousness, about trying to pursue the law in the wrong way. And it's as though he's saying, road closed ahead, road closed ahead, road closed ahead. And then with the coming of the Lord Jesus, with his sacrificial death on the cross, with his resurrection. It's as though the ballards are there across. <laughs> no way through. Christ is the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And when the light of the gospel dawns in my heart, when, when I see it, the idea of trying to establish my own righteousness is an absolute nonsense. <laughs> Do I really think if I could make myself righteous that Jesus Christ would have left heaven and come down into this world to be mocked and beaten and spit upon, to take upon himself the wrath of God? Do I really think if I could establish my own righteousness, if there was another way that Jesus would have done that? Would the Father have sent the eternal Son of his love into this world to die in our place, to be a sacrifice for our sins so that we can be righteous, if there was another way? <laughs> Absolutely not. And so when I see Jesus, it's the end. It's the end of any pursuit of the law as a way to righteousness. It's really important that we grasp this, particularly for younger ones growing up in the church, hearing teaching from the Bible, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's a real danger that because of our, our sinful hearts, the default of our hearts, that we, we begin to understand Christianity in terms of what I do, a pattern of behavior Christianity isn't first and foremost about what I do. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done. I hope you see what Paul is saying here. It's not by our religious activities that we belong. I do not belong to this church simply because I show up each week. I serve in various ways, even because I preach a sermon on a Sunday, that's not how I belong to the church. I come to belong to the church because I receive mercy 
in Jesus Christ. What does all this have to do with fervent prayer? <laughs> what does all this have to do with fervent prayer? Well, when we, found out that, when we find out that, that salvation and safety is only ever found in Jesus Christ, we know that all those who are outside of Jesus Christ are not saved and not safe. In fact, they are lost. Even though their lives may look religious, and respectable. That was the case for the Jews. They had all their religious privileges, their religious zeal, and yet they're lost. And Paul has this clear-sightedness, and we need this clear-sightedness. In an average day in the GP surgery, meet all sorts of people, a whole spectrum of people. At one end, there's people who are very obviously needy. Think about the person who is a drug, drug addict, whose life is full of chaos and mess. Obviously very needy. But then even 10 minutes later, I can be sat talking with another patient who seems to have everything all together. <laughs> Had an exceptional career. super organized, everything in place. They seem to have no needs whatsoever. By this world's standards, they're good. May even be a churchgoer. And yet I need the clear sightedness that the gospel gives me to know that both of those people, apart from Christ, are lost. And both of those people desperately need prayers. Salvation, we see clearly here, belongs to the Lord. God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And when we believe that, it will drive us to our knees in fervent prayer. Do we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord as a church? Do we really believe that? Do we believe that God and God alone is able to save? Well, that question will be answered by how much we pray. By how much we pray for those who are lost. Let's pray together now and then we'll sing another song. Dear Father God, we thank you so much for your grace and kindness to us. Father, yet even as we thank you, we realize that in our villages, in our families, in our workplaces, there are so many people who are separated from Jesus. And so in our hearts now, we name those people. Lord, we pray for those that we love who don't yet know you. We ask, Lord, that in your mercy you would break into their lives and bring them to saving faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would humble them before our Saviour and make them your children. 
Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy again. We pray that you would wean us from trusting in our own performance. Lord, how easily we go there. Lord, we pray that you would help us to bask in the glory of Jesus' death and resurrection. And may we be those who refuse to boast anywhere else except in Christ. We pray these prayers in his name. Amen.